John chapter 1, I'd like to begin today a study in the gospel according to John. The Lord has given to us four pictures, four different gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The first three, or uh, I guess John's not the last in the order of our books, but Matthew, Mark, Luke are known as synoptic gospels. They, they uh look at things in a similar way. They, they paint a similar picture. They follow a similar kind of outline in the way they convey and record the works and words of Jesus. John is unique in the way he does that. There's often long discourses in the gospel of John. Fewer miracles and so forth are, are told that God has a great purpose in giving to his church this book. Some say shallow enough for an infant to bathe in and deep enough for an elephant to Swim in or something like that, uh, is the Gospel of John. I'd like to begin slowly this morning by uh, preaching the first five verses, but I'd like to read the first 18 verses of this Gospel. John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of that light, that was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Let's bow and ask for God's help. Our Father in heaven, we stand before profound truth, majestic glories. And as we stand upon holy ground, we pray that you would help us to speak, to think, to believe correctly concerning our Lord Jesus Christ. How we thank you for this revelation. And we pray, Lord, it would form our thoughts on the basis of our faith. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Congregation of Christ, when you write a book or a paper or whatever, there's, there's different ways of doing that. Sometimes people write books and and you don't know what it's all about till you get to the end, right? And those are 
interesting and fun books to read, a kind of mystery. If you don't skip to the end, but you just read through it, it's a growing knowledge and a growing sense. But you don't find out the end until the thing at the end you find out. Had you known that when you read the first page, it would completely change how you read that first page. But other things like papers, thesis papers, you, you set out the beginning, the very thesis that, that you're seeking to establish, you say it up front, this is it, and then you go through writing in such a way as to support that thesis. Well, the Gospel of John is more like that than a mystery novel that you don't find out till the end, because John, at the very word go, his very opening, is seeking to tell us the thing that he wants to impress upon us, that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. And so, everything that's to be read, everything John will communicate by the Holy Spirit in the rest of this gospel account is to be understood in the light of the first 18 verses of this book that we sometimes refer to as the prologue or the introduction. And everything we're going to read about what Jesus says, about what Jesus does, is to be comprehended with what we already know from the introduction to this book. Context is important. We know that, right? When somebody's telling a story, sometimes we stop them. We say, well, now, wait a minute. Who are you talking about? And we, we want the context. Or, or if we meet people, we ask them, well, what's your name? And where do you come from? And we want to know those things matter. Well, John, at the end of the book, will show us doubting Thomas now having met the risen Lord Jesus who cries out at last, my Lord and my God. And that's where the book is headed to the most profound response that a human can have to the revelation, my Lord and my God. But John tells us up front, this is what it's about. John's not writing some, some neutral history, some detached observer who's just communicating things he, he humanly witnessed Jesus do or say. But, but this is God's word, of course, through the pen of John, written by the Holy Spirit, in which John is attempting to do something. And he tells us at the end of the book what he wants to do. He says that that all this is written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wants to lead people to everlasting life by knowing this Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ, the Son of God. And so... If you could imagine it's something like this, that if you were to set out to climb up a mountain and you, you had all your gear and you came to the base of the mountain and your guide was there and you're expecting to start out on the, the climb and he, he says, I've got a surprise for you and a helicopter lands and he, he puts you in the helicopter and, and they fly to the top of the summit and he allows you to see where you'll be going and to look down upon all the terrain you're going to traverse in the climb and then he brings you back down and says, now we're going to start. John, in the opening verses, takes us to the summit. And then after the prologue, we begin to the base, to climb and to climb and to climb, that we, by God's grace, might say with Thomas at the end, my Lord and my God. So let's look at these opening five verses of, I guess, about a third of the, the introduction or prologue here, and see that, that the word spoken of here, the eternal word, is God, First of all, he's the creator. Secondly, it's told us. And thirdly, it's told us that he is life and light. 
Well, let me start out here with a, a bit of a test question for the boys and girls. I think it's one they could all probably get. But boys and girls, if, if this gospel according to John begins in the beginning, what other book of the Bible begins with exactly those words, in the beginning? But most of you know the answer to that. That's the first book of the Bible, isn't it? The book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Genesis opens that way. And those are majestic words. And that's where the story of humanity begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And those words are foundational for every other word that's read in the Bible, right? If you didn't know that, how could you possibly read the rest of the scriptures? If you didn't know that God is God, he was there at the beginning, he's the eternal one. And if you didn't know that he made everything and he made me, then you couldn't very well read the scriptures and understand them. In fact, when, when this knowledge of God's creative work is lost, then, then we get very confused. And, and our culture is a case in point, right? The further we get away from the doctrine of God the creator and God's creation, the more evolution is taught in our schools that there is no purposeful beginning, there's no one behind any of this, it's all rather random, then the stranger our behaviors, Right? We need the context. We need the knowledge of the glorious, majestic Lord. It's essential that we bow down and worship at the foot of the Creator. But now John tells us something amazing. As he begins his gospel account, John purposefully echoes the exact words of Genesis 1-1, and he begins his gospel account in the beginning. He grabs our attention as he echoes those words. And and he tells us, in effect, that if we could take a time machine and travel back in time to the very origin of this universe, we would discover that the one that we call Jesus was there. He was there. He was there as the eternal Son of God. In the beginning was the Word. That's what he's, the title he's using for the Son of God here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John's gospel, according to God's sovereign purpose, begins different than the other gospel accounts, right? Mark just takes us back to John the Baptist, his ministry and the, and the baptism of Jesus. And uh, Luke, well, he goes back a little further. He takes us back to the conception of Jesus, the angel talking to Mary, the birth in Bethlehem. And Matthew, he goes quite a ways further back. Matthew begins with a genealogy, and he goes all the way back, tracing Christ's lineage to Abraham. But John goes back to the beginning, the beginning of time. And actually, John doesn't just go back to the beginning of time, but John, as it were, he, he pierces the veil of time and space and goes beyond that to eternity, right? Because he tells us, that there was the word with God. And he says that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. He's proclaiming to us something that is a marvelous mystery. We, we, we have glimpses of it in Genesis, right? When we read God say, let us create man in our image, and we see there's a, a plurality 
But the Gospel of John reveals to us in glorious ways the mystery of the Trinity, that we have one God, but he exists in three persons, and those three distinct persons, each of whom is God, dwell in the most glorious fellowship. And John says that this word was with God, and the Greek word used means toward God. Somebody has translated it that the word stands face to face with God. That there's a, a, a hint here about the intimacy and the communion that the word of God, the son of God, has, has lived and dwelt in the closest intimacy with the father. In fact, John will, will go on to say, won't he, in verse 18, that no one has seen God at any time but the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father. He has declared him or some modern translations, he's at the Father's side. He, he, he reclined in the most closest place of fellowship with the Father. So John has taken us beyond the beginning of time into eternity, to the unique existence of the Word of God. Now, when he's called the Word here in distinction from God, we, we see that there's a distinction of persons among the Godhead. When we read that in the beginning was the Word... We read about Jesus Christ as the creator. We'll we'll come to that in a moment. It says that he was God. If you have some people knocking on your door, want to talk to you about religious things, they might have a translation of a, a Bible that says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. You've met the so-called Jehovah's Witnesses before in their New World Translation. And they want to argue that because the Greek doesn't have the definite article, therefore God spoken of there is not the definite God, the God, but a God. Well... Greek doesn't always use the definite article to declare something that's definite. And the context is king. And the context, undoubtedly the context, when John says, in the beginning, and when John proclaims him the creator, the context is the one true God. He is God. But John is also wanting us to see this supreme delight in which the Son dwells in the presence of his Father, and, you know, that delight was such a, a glorious reality burned upon the consciousness of, of God's servant, Jesus Christ, that even as he walked upon the earth, you remember how he prayed at the end of his life? He prayed in, in, in John 17, And now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. The glory I had with you before the world was. And when we see all this, then we're going to see, aren't we, in this gospel account, how great is the infinite love and the the incomprehensible condescension that the eternal Son of God, dwelling in infinite delight with his Father, came down from that place to take up our sin-weakened humanity and to die in our place. John wants us to get a glimpse of this glorious, glorious reality Maybe we could even sing these words of this hymn. Who is he born in the stall at whose feet the shepherds fall? Who is he in deep distress fasting in the wilderness? 
Who is he? The people blast for his words of gentleness. Who is he to whom they bring all the sick and sorrowing? Low at midnight, who is he? Praise in dark Gethsemane. Who is he upon the tree? Dies in grief and agony. Tis the Lord. O wondrous story. Tis the Lord, the King of glory. At his feet we humbly fall. Crown him, crown him, Lord of all. John takes us to the summit. The one you're about to witness giving his life in ministry. And finally, offering his life a sacrifice is the eternal word, the Son of God. Now, it's an interesting title that, that John uses for the Son of God, the Word. John's actually the only one in the Bible who uses that title for Jesus. A few places. Sometimes there's debate about where that title came from because it's noted that, that the, the philosophers of, of John's day and after John's day, they, they used that Greek word behind there, logos, as a kind of important word in their philosophies. And so some wonder if John's drawing on that, but, but that's not really what John's drawing on. John's drawing the opposite way from the Old Testament, right? John knows the revelation. We sang already Psalm 33 this morning. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, right? The word of God. Yeah, Psalm 107, that, that God sent his word and he healed the people. That's the background. But what is word? What is speech? It's, it's the expression of oneself, isn't it? And it reveals self to others. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, is the image of the Father. He is the speech, the logos, the word of revelation, isn't he? If throughout the Old Testament God, God revealed himself in speaking, when God gives to us his ultimate self-revelation, his own image, his own beloved son, what a glorious title to call him the word. He is God's full self-disclosure of himself to us. And yet, as one theologian has pointed out, though John wasn't drawing upon Greek philosophers, the thing John is saying here is exactly what the Greek philosophers needed to hear. Because they, even like people today, were, were trying to figure out what's, what's the key to understanding the universe. What, where's a beginning point, a stable point upon which we can stand and understand how all this fits together? We live in this changing world. We live in this world of such variety. What is the unifying principle? What does it all mean? Some of the Greek philosophers says it's the logos. The logos is the rational principle that gives coherence to everything. And the logos they thought of, the word they thought of, was incorrect. But Christians could point them to the true word, the true logos, Jesus Christ. Because in him, all things hold together and all things have meaning. Brothers and sisters, we live in a world that is still trying to find the, the key to the universe. And when you look at whatever, whatever departments, you know, whether it be uh, physical sciences or, or psychology or, or historians, everybody's trying to figure out how does it all go together? What, what is the unifying factor? Or you look at our social issues today. We're stuck in this great complexity, aren't we, between the, the unity and the diversity, 
Our culture is all about diversity, and then we're trying to get everybody together and talk about unity. And then when we come together as unity, then we have to divide and accuse people of things, and we have to, we have to scatter, and our culture can't get it. How, how do we go together as humanity? Is it that some are oppressors, some are the oppressed, some are rich and some are poor? Is that some are from one country and some another? Is that some are of this race and some are of that race? And the answer is the word of God. In the beginning was the word. All things hold together in Christ. In Christ is the origin of creation. In Christ is the unity of creation. In Christ is the very goal of creation. In the beginning was the word. The more we as believers come to look with awe and wonder about who our Savior is, he's the eternal son of God. Remember, I hope I have the quote right, but I I remember years ago reading what Guido de Bray, the author of the Belgian Confession, said on the morning he found it, when he was in prison, he found out this would be his day of execution. And he, was, he went to the other prisoners and he, he was overwhelmed. And he said, I never thought it should be granted to me that I would get to die for the Son of God. For the Son of God. The more we stand in breathtaking wonder and looking upon Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the more glory we give him, the more grateful we are, the more hopeful we are. He is eternal God. But then secondly, it follows that he is the creator. He is the creator. And that brings us to verse 3. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. God created everything through his son. You remember at Colossians, actually, in in chapter 3, verse 16, says it so, so boldly and plainly, doesn't it? Excuse me, chapter 1, verse 16. Uh, he, it says of, of Christ that he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Remember, uh, Arius the heretic said firstborn of all creation means that, that he was the first creature God made. But no, verse 16, for by him all things were created. Well, he didn't create himself. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist or hold together. That's the reality, the glorious reality. Everything was made through the word of God and for the word of God, through Christ and for Christ. What a glorious thing that God should create us through his Son. It's a great task of the Son of God to, to create us in such a way as to display the great love of God. Everything the Son of God made, everything the eternal word made, was, was made and arranged in such a way as proof of the Father's great love. And it was all made to serve the fellowship between God and humanity. And finally, the last thing that was made was was mankind and made in the very image of God, stamped with the very own likeness of God in true righteousness and knowledge and holiness to know God and commune with God and to love God and to serve God and to find happiness in God. God made us for himself. That's our identity. And so when today you hear everyone 
buzzing with, with, with questions of identity, right? Identity politics, or, or how do you identify now in terms of all kinds of things? Well, we get pretty upset, don't we, that we as a culture have come so far. People would identify in all kinds of ways. But you know what we forget sometimes is that this is just the natural outworking of our treachery in the garden when we refuse to identify properly as God's created image bearers. Right? Everything we see in our culture today is, is traced right back there to the garden. When Adam and Eve said, no, we're not yours, God, to be your submissive servants. We're our own people. We'll do our own thing. We'll make our own choices, and we will eat of this fruit. That was the beginning of people assuming they have the right of determination concerning their identity. But you see, John's telling us that the one who comes down from heaven is not going to be snowed by the academics or intimidated by the culture He's not going to say, well, you know, I don't know. All right, is that what you want to be? That's okay then. Because because the one who's come down from heaven is the eternal word who made the world and who made you. He made the whole world. He made the lilies on the mountaintops. He made the the sea creatures in the ocean depths. He he made the center of the earth to which no one has ever been. He scattered the stars and galaxies beyond what your telescopes can reach. He gifted a sun and a moon to to mark our days. He made the womb of Mary into which he came. He made the wood of the cross on which he would die. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. He made us in God's own image to know God, love God, serve God. His act of making us was a supreme act of love because he made us for communion with God. From the very start, we were placed in covenant fellowship with God who promised to be our God. And isn't it striking now when John wants to tell us about what the Son of God, the Creator, has come to do upon the earth, he begins with the words, in the beginning, in the beginning. And what's he saying to us if he's not saying that God hasn't given up on his world? God hasn't given up on his world. God hasn't forgotten what he started. God hasn't abandoned this planet to some alien species or to some developer who parachuted into here from Mars and looks upon the earth and looks upon humanity and says, you know, I have a great plan for your life. Let's do this. No, in the beginning, John says, the very God who made, the very word who created you has come. He's come to recreate. He's come for a new beginning. He's come for the restoration of the old beginning and actually to raise us higher than the old beginning, to raise us to a place where we cannot sin and our fellowship with God is forever perfected. But everything Jesus Christ is doing then is to be understood in light of God's original creation. He's going back to the beginning. He's not doing a brand new thing, but he's doing everything in light of the creator and what he did. And since he comes to restore who is the creator, then 
we can assume that he knows a thing or two about this world and about us and about our needs. John is saying that what I'm going to tell you about in this gospel is not a first-year student of psychology. You know, he thinks he knows something about you. The one I'm going to show you who speaks to people and uncovers their sins, who tells people it's wrong and who fixes them, is your creator who's come to remake you. And this should be very comforting to us, brothers and sisters, very comforting that no one knows us better and and no one knows us more thoroughly and no one knows us in greater love than our maker. And no one knows better than our creator the very glory for which we were made. I mean, you, you, you could have gone to a school where you had a teacher who was very hopeful about you and kept talking about your potential. You've got great potential. You, I see things in you. you. But no, the one who knows what we are made for, to live in eternal fellowship with God, to reflect the very glory of the eternal one. Jesus knows this about us. And he knows how we ruin things. And he knows the cause of all the misery. In John chapter 2, John will say that Jesus knew all men and has no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And isn't that what makes Christ such a wonderful counselor, such a wonder of a counselor? You know, if you go to a counselor, the first appointment is fact-finding, right? You have, to, you have to unveil to them. You have to reveal to the counselor all kinds of things. And even then, the counselor won't know if you really told them everything, and you won't know if you've really told them everything. But John is going to tell us about the one who knows what's in a man. He's the creator. He knows what makes you sad. He knows why you're confused. He knows your sins, even your secret ones. He knows the sinful fantasies that you indulge or the selfish ambitions that move your heart. He knows if you are addicted. He knows the pride that you may have, even though you disguise it as humility. He knows what robs your marriage of fellowship. He knows the things that make a a young person worry. He knows all of our thoughts that are not aligned with truth. He made you. He made you. It's not that Christ doesn't have time for people who are all confused about their identity. But he's actually come for such people. Long before how do you identify became the question of the culture, it was, it was the question of humanity in the garden. Adam and Eve identifying as their own sovereign agents to determine what they wanted to be. And the creator come down from heaven to say, let me tell you who you are. Let me tell you what you've become. And let me tell you what I'm here to remake you as.
the children of God. Isn't it humbling that it takes to fix us? To fix us it takes. Not a counselor. Not the best psychiatrist in the world. To fix us it takes the creator to come down from heaven and put us back together. To cleanse our hearts. To renew us in God's image. It takes the creator All things were made through him. But finally, John tells us in verses 4 and 5, that in him is life and light. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. If we had thought in any way that this creator was some impersonal cosmic force who was rather detached from what he made, John says now, actually, in him was life. And all things have life from him. Life does not come from nothing, and life does not come from non-life, despite the Big Bang Theory. Life only comes from life, and in him was life. The Son of God has self-existent life. He creates out of nothing, and he gives life. And that life, as it's manifested, is, is light. And he gives to mankind, in a special sense, that life which is light to know God. We we were made in God's image, and from the start, humanity was distinguished from all other creature life in that we had light. We had the radiance of God's love and fellowship. We knew God. And that image of God became defaced and deformed and damaged in us, and yet every image bearer of God still bears the marks of true humanity in a sense. But Jesus Christ has come to save Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Jesus will say in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Jesus Christ is that light, isn't he? The light that brings life. If you want to escape spiritual darkness, if you want to, to know God again, you have to stand In Christ Jesus, he alone who has come from the Father's side, he alone can reveal the Father to you. He alone can change your heart and pierce the darkness within and give you eyes to be able to see again out of your blindness. Our pluralistic culture wants to say there's many different lights. Everybody has a bit of the light. Or or you need to be true to yourself. Just, Just harness the light within. Follow the light inside of you. And John says unequivocally that there is no other light but the eternal word of God, the Son of God. And if you would have light, you must have him. That light, he says, was not comprehended. He goes on to say in verses 10 and 11 that even though he made the world, the world did not know him. Verse 11, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Many have rejected that light. The word John uses in verse 5, actually, when it says that the darkness did not comprehend it, you might have a footnote that says it could also be translated, did not overcome it. Commentators debate which way to go on that translation, but, but John may have been leaving it a bit ambiguous because both are true, right? Many did not understand the light, did not receive the light, but, but equally true, none were able to overcome the light. 
John saw Jesus face the most violent attack, nailed to a cross, and he rose from the dead. And John, depending on where you think John was written, you know, there's a church tradition that says it was the Gospel of John was written last, about A.D. 90. John living longer than the other apostles who were, who were martyred. And if that's the case, John has seen persecution against the church. He has seen the world taking its best shots against God's people. In fact, even if you think John wrote it earlier, he'd seen so much, right? And yet, they couldn't extinguish the light. The gospel still being preached throughout the world. And here we are two millennia later, right? And, and it said that in the last century, more Christians died martyrs' death than all the other centuries combined. The evil one is still ferocious. Guess what? The gospel is still being preached. None can overcome the light. And what hope for us as sinners today that, that death could not hold our Savior and our own spiritual darkness cannot hold our Savior. And if this morning you say, you don't know how dark I am. Ever feel like that? Put on these Sunday clothes, I look nice and I talk nice to people, but you don't know the darkness within. Well, even that darkness is not greater than the Lord Jesus Christ. The eternal word, son of God, the creator of your whole being, come down from heaven, from the side of the Father, to bring light into the darkness, and your darkness cannot overcome him. Our greatest savior we have. Christology is the study of Christ, of the person and work of Christ. Let me in conclusion, I ask you this morning, how good is your Christology? Is your view of your Savior high enough? Do your thoughts soar with wonder when you, when you watch Jesus turn the water into wine, when you watch Jesus feed the 5,000, when you watch Jesus speaking and ministering, when you watch Jesus dying on the cross? Do you know who this is? This is the eternal Son of God. who came to bring us back into communion with God. So John brings us to the breathtaking summit. So that everything we read might be read in light of this introduction. I said that at the beginning. But what I didn't say is that there's a real sense in which everything that's said in this introduction cannot be understood unless you read the rest of the book. Because it's in reading the rest of the book that John will show you what all of these compacted words mean as they're worked out in the glorious, merciful, compassionate things that Christ Jesus does to restore sinners and to point them back to God. What a glorious Savior we have. If we would know him in his greatness and majesty, our hearts would rejoice. And in knowing him, we'd know true happiness. And in knowing true happiness, then we know that we as a church, we have the word that the world needs to know about. We have the Son of God, the Savior. May God lift our hearts high, stand in amazement that the Eternal One, the very creator of our bodies and souls, has come upon this planet 
to give us a new beginning. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you, humble to meet your beloved, and grasping, O Lord, to know something of his glory. We pray, Heavenly Father, that your word would sink and penetrate deep into our hearts, that you, by your spirit, would help us to see what we could never see in ourselves. We thank you, Lord, for sending to us your eternal word. And in his name we pray, you bless your word to us. Amen.